Welcome to Truth 101 with Dr. Greg Ammons, a podcast which examines tenets of the Christian faith in a systematic way. Dr. Ammons serves as a local church pastor and professor of theology in the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral levels, bringing years of experience into the theological arena. Now, here's Dr. Ammons. Are there any errors in the Bible? Well, Pastor, of course there are not errors in the Bible. Well, I agree with you, but why do you believe that? Do you just accept blindly that the Bible is inerrant? Or are there concrete reasons why you can know that there are no errors in Scripture? Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Ammons. Welcome to Truth 101, where we look at the Christian faith in a systematic way. And in this 600 series, we've been looking at the Word of God, the Bible itself. It has come under intense scrutiny in our day and age and in our culture. And so I think it's imperative that we look closely at all aspects of, of God's Word, Scripture. And now we're looking and turn our attention to the inerrancy of, of Scripture. The issue of inerrancy is of such great concern in the evangelical world today that it really warrants a couple of episodes in our podcast to talk about the authority of God's Word and the inerrancy of Scripture. So this is part one, and we'll be looking at part two to follow this episode. First of all, let's talk about the meaning of inerrancy. What do we mean whenever we say that the Bible is inerrant? Well, first of all, there are statements in Scripture itself that talk about the truthfulness of God's Word. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. That indicates the absolute reliability and purity of God's Word. Psalm 30, or rather Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And I believe this verse indicates the truthfulness of every word that God has spoken. And even though error and at least partial falsehood may characterize our speech as humans from time to time, it is the characteristic of God's speech that even when spoken through sinful human beings, that it is never false and that it never affirms error. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. And this verse was spoken by a sinful man, Balaam, specifically about the prophetic words God had spoken through his lips. So the Bible does affirm the truthfulness of every word of Scripture. Now, I believe it's important to, to get a definition of inerrancy because I believe the word inerrant means different things to different people. So I want to have a working definition uh, as listed by Wayne Grudem, the, the wonderful uh, theologian who talks about the inerrancy of Scripture in his book, uh, Systematic Theology. He says that the inerrancy of Scripture can be defined as, quote, the, the inerrancy of Scripture means that 
the Bible in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me say that again. The inerrancy of Scripture means that the Bible in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now that definition by Grudem focuses on the question of truthfulness and falsehood in the language of Scripture. The definition in simple terms just means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. So the definition does not mean the Bible tells every fact that there is to know about any one subject, but it does affirm that what it does say on any subject is true. Now, let's look at four statements of inerrancy that I think will help to bring the, the topic into focus for us a little bit better. Let me give you four statements about the inerrancy of Scripture. Number one, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Let's look at some examples. Look at the example of the scientific or the historical description of facts. The Bible talks about the sun rising in Psalm 113.3. And it talks about the rain falling, Isaiah 55.10. Because from the perspective of the speaker, that is exactly what happens. Now, from the standpoint of, of an observer, let's say, standing on the sun, you can't do that. But if they could do that, from a hypothetical fixed point in space, they would see that the earth rotates and brings the sun into view. And that the rain doesn't really fall downward, but rather upward or sideways or whatever direction that the, the gravity of the earth is, is pulling it. But such explanations are, are hopelessly pedantic, really. It would make ordinary communication impossible if you, if you gauged every single statement like that. So from the standpoint of the speaker in Scripture, the sun does rise, and the rain does fall. And these are perfectly true descriptions of the national, natural phenomena that the speaker observes. Let's look at that statement in view of, let's say, uh, numbers. Uh, uh, numbers whenever used in measuring or counting in the Bible. For example, a reporter can say that 8,000 men were killed in a certain battle. Well, that doesn't imply that they counted every single one and that there are not 7,999 men or 8,001 dead soldiers. If roughly 8,000 died, it would of course be false to say 16,000 died. But it would not be false in most contexts for a reporter to say 8,000 men are dead when in, the, in actuality it may be 7,823 had died. So the limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by his original hearers. Let me give you another example. Let's, let's talk about measurements in the Bible. Whether somebody says, I don't live far from my office, or, or they say, I live a little over a mile from my office, or they say, I live one mile from my office, 
or they say, I live 1.28764 miles from my office. All four of those statements are still approximations to some degree of accuracy, of exact accuracy. Further degrees of accuracy might be obtained with more precise instruments, but these still would be approximations to a certain degree, really. The measurements, in order to be true, should conform to the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by the hearers in the original context. So, having said that, it, it really should not trouble us then to affirm both that the Bible is absolutely truthful in everything it says and that it uses ordinary language to describe natural phenomena or to give approximations or round numbers when those are appropriate in the context. Let me give, give you an example concerning language. We can also make vague or imprecise statements without being untrue. For example, somebody can say, I, little, I live a little over a mile from my office. That's vague, it's imprecise, but it's also inerrant because there's nothing untrue about what that statement says. It does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So in a similar way, biblical statements can be imprecise and still be totally true and totally accurate. So inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. So that's statement number one. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Here's statement number two. The Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. Let me explain. The method by which one person quotes the words of another person is a procedure that really varies from culture to culture. Now in our American contemporary culture, we're used to quoting a person's exact words when we enclose the statement in quotation marks. That's called a direct quotation. But when we use indirect quotations, which are no quotation marks, we only expect an accurate report of the substance of the statement, not a word-for-word -word accuracy. Think about this sentence. Bill said he would return home from supper right away. This sentence does not quote what Bill said directly. It is acceptable. It is truthful. It's a truthful report of Bill's actual statement, but it's not a word-for-word -word of his statement. Uh, Bill might have said, I'll come to the house to eat in two minutes. That might be his direct quote, but it doesn't make his indirect quote wrong. Now, written Greek at the time of the New Testament had no quotation marks, no equivalent kinds of punctuation. And so an accurate citation of another person needed to include a correct representation of the content of what that person said. It was not expected that every single word was quoted exactly. They had no quotation marks in Greek. So, therefore, inerrancy is consistent with loose or free quotations of the Old Testament or of the words of Jesus. For example, so long as the content is not false to what was originally stated. So the original writer did not ordinarily imply 
that he was using the exact words of the speaker and only those exact words. So that, that also affects, I believe, the discussion of inerrancy. Statement number three. It is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. It's, it's consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in Scripture. Now, if it were left up to us to imagine what an inerrant Bible would look like, we might say that it would have a consistently elegant, magnificent literary style all throughout with no misspell words, no irregularly spell words, no deviations from accepted grammatical rules. And we would say, okay, that's the perfect example of an inerrant Bible. But the Bible nowhere claims to be perfect in such things as style and grammar and and even spelling. What it claims is that its statements are true. In fact, what we find in the Bible is a wide variety of writing styles. Some of the language is very elegant. You look at Hebrews, very elegant style of writing Greek, stylistically excellent. And then you look at the Gospel of Mark, and it's choppy, and it's like a little child telling a story that's very excited. Mark is very poor Greek and very poor English, but both Hebrews and Mark are accurate accounts. Other scriptural writings contain the rough-hewn language of ordinary people like Mark. At times, this includes a failure to follow the commonly accepted rules of grammar and expression, which, which Mark did, but it doesn't make Mark inaccurate in, in any way. So, these stylistic or grammatically irregular statements should not trouble us. They don't affect the truthfulness of the statements under any consideration. The statement can be ungrammatical or include misspellings, but still be untrue. Let me give you another example. If I were to type out an email quickly, and I just were to say in the email, I teach theology at Dallas Baptist University. And in my haste in typing it, I spell teach, T-E-E-C-H, instead of T-E-A-C-H. Well, that statement is still completely true. I, I do teach theology at Dallas Baptist University, that word is misspelled as I hastily wrote it out, doesn't make the statement untrue, even though it's not grammatically correct or even spelled correctly. So an uneducated backwoodsman in a rural area of the United States may be the most trusted man in the county, even though his grammar is poor, or because he's earned a reputation for never telling a lie. So. So even though the Bible never claims to be that stylistically every single uh, style of writing is perfect, it tells us that the statements are perfect themselves. Always true and never contrary to fact. Now, fourth statement of inerrancy I want to make has to do with problems that deal with denying inerrancy. Problems that deal with denying inerrancy. And I think there are about four aspects to this, to this last statement. 
The problems that come with a denial of biblical inerrancy are, are not insignificant. And whenever we understand the magnitude of these problems, I believe it gives us further encouragement not only to affirm inerrancy, but to affirm its importance for the church as well. Let me make four statements about denying inerrancy. Number one, if we deny inerrancy of Scripture, a serious moral problem confronts us. And that problem is, can we really imitate God and can we lie in any kind of matter? Ephesians 5.1 tells us that we are to be imitators of God. But a denial of inerrancy of the Bible that still claims that the words of Scripture, God breathed, necessarily implies God intentionally spoke falsehood and in, in, in is less than truthful in some affirmations of Scripture. But if this is right for God to do, how can it be wrong for us to do? So such a line of reasoning would, if we believed it, exert strong pressure on us to begin speaking untruthfully in situations that might seem to help us communicate better. So this position, position would be a slippery slope morally with ever-increasing negative results in our lives. So if we deny inerrancy, we, we, we have a serious moral problem with God and ourselves that develops. Here's the second problem with denying inerrancy. If inerrancy is denied we begin to wonder if we can truly trust anything God says, right? I mean, once we become convinced that God has spoken falsely to us in some minor matters in Scripture, then we realize that God must be capable of speaking falsely in other matters. And, and, and that will have a detrimental effect on our ability to take God at His word. To, to trust God completely or even obey God fully in the rest of Scripture. In fact, we'll begin to disobey initially those sections of Scripture that we at least wish to obey and, and then distrust initially those sections that we are inclined to trust. But such a procedure would eventually increase to the great detriment of our spiritual lives. Think about it. Such a decline in trust and obedience to Scripture may not necessarily follow in the life of every individual who denies inerrancy, but it will certainly be the general pattern. It will be a pattern exhibited over the course of a generation that is taught to deny inerrancy. So if inerrancy is denied, you begin to wonder if you can really trust God in anything He says. So that's another reason I believe that we must affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Third reason, third problem with denying inerrancy. If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word itself. Think about that. If we deny inerrancy, we're essentially saying my human mind is a greater standard of truth in God's Word. We use our minds to pass judgment on some sections of, of God's Word and pronounce them to be an error. It's my own mind that I read Scripture and go, oh, okay, that must be an error. 
Well, does that make my mind a greater authority than God? This is in effect to say that, that we know truth more certainly and more accurately than God's Word knows truth, or that God does. So, such a procedure of making our own minds to be a higher standard of truth in God's Word is the root of, of all intellectual sin. So, if we deny inerrancy, we are essentially making our own minds a higher standard of truth in God's Word itself. What a dangerous place to be. And then the fourth problem with denying inerrancy is this. If we deny inerrancy, then we must also say that the Bible is wrong not only in minor details, but in some of the great doctrines as well. So a denial of inerrancy means that we say that the Bible's teaching about the nature of Scripture and about the truthfulness and reliability of Scripture, that they are also false. Now, these are minor details, but they are major doctrinal concerns in the Bible. So, friends, if we deny inerrancy, we must also say the Bible's wrong not just in minor details, it could be wrong in major doctrines as well. So, to me, these are four problems with denying the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe what God has given us, and, and, and I believe Scripture affirms this to be true in many places, what God has given us in His Word is totally accurate, contrary, uh, that, that never teaches anything contrary to fact in any way. And as Wayne Grudem says, I believe the inerrancy of Scripture means that the Bible in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. What you hold in your hands is completely and totally and 100% free of error, totally truthful, and you can base your life and eternity 100% on God's Word. Well, in our next episode, we will examine some common objections that people make in our society today to the inerrancy of Scripture. Hope you've enjoyed our time together. God bless you. We'll see you next time in Truth 101. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful or so that you shall not depart from your, it shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Again, that's Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And then finally, listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. It is the Word of God in the form of written Scripture that is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. So, what you have in your hands as the Word of God, as the Bible, is God's Word directly to you with authority, completely truthful, and so we are commanded to obey it, we are commanded to study it, we are commanded to read it. I hope that you have a practice of reading God's Word daily and letting God speak to you through them. Well, I'm glad that you've joined us for this episode of Truth 101 in the 600 series talking about the Bible itself. Join us next time as we talk further about the Word of God. God bless you. We'll see you then.
You have been listening to Truth 101 with Dr. Greg Ammons. We hope you have enjoyed today's teaching. For more information on recent sermons by Dr. Ammons, go to www.fbcgarland.org and join us next time for Truth 101.